Let us pray. Lord Jesus, speak to us now and help us not to delay in attending to your words. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now my sermon this morning is a little bit complex. It is, as they say, aimed at a seminary audience, not at the general public. But in fact, my main point is rather simple, perhaps even simplistic, which is that the spiritual fruit of faith, which is my topic this morning, boils down to just plain showing up. Faith is just showing up in the world as it is. In the modern era, however, the world as it is is something the spirit is often viewed, mistakenly, I think, as trying to take us away from. Take us to better feelings, better vision, better bodies, better places. From the 17th century on, the spiritual fruit, which we've been discussing, thus came to be mostly viewed in terms of historical novelty. The fruit, it was argued, are perhaps part of the new creation that Isaiah prophesied about in chapters 32, 57, so on. In an era of pneumatic outpouring upon Israel and upon her land that will bring forth the fruit of righteousness and peace and so on. And Paul probably was thinking of this in some way. Or in the modern era, the fruit are often viewed as describing the new social relationships found in Jesus' followers. A new egalitarian community, perhaps, freed from the old legalistic hierarchies of the Old Testament era. That's been a common theme in our epoch. Or perhaps the fruit of the Spirit are simply the results of a heart converted to Jesus. And there you are. Whatever the case, in many modern interpretations of the fruit of the Spirit, History is seen as having moved, you see, on its incarnational or eschatological hinge. And something new has now stepped through the door. And this is it. These special ways of being, joy, hope, love, goodness, and so on. Now the challenge to these modern historical ways of reading the fruit is this. The actual fruit that Paul lists are the same pretty much as any good folk would like to see evidence in personal and common life, no matter who you are. Just as the works of the flesh are themselves pretty predictable in the context of stable and ordered societies. Paul calls them obvious. Pagan thinkers, whether Stoic or Epicurean or just plain grubby polytheists, would have much the same lists. And it all seems very domestic, doesn't it? even rather bourgeois, as 18th and 19th century critics of Christian morality, not to mention days, liked pointing out. Don't yell at people. Don't break things. Be nice. However so British, however so repressive, however so boring. Of course, bourgeois life was never easy. Hence, all the mockeries associated with its hypocrisies and failures. Who, after all, really is gentle, self-controlled, temperate, and kind? It's no surprise that the pre-modern 
Christian tradition folded the spiritual fruit into an elaborated vision of virtue formation, as we see developed in the Thomistic tradition. The fruit are the virtues in action, St. Thomas Aquinas says. It's what we all want for ourselves, but now finally can put into practice. Courage, temperance, hope, and so on. The point is, in this view, the new creation and the great historical chasm of the incarnation and the gift of the Spirit do not seem to have altered the always desired shape of human life that much. Just articulated it more clearly and articulated better some of its mechanisms. The Spirit somehow helps us to be good in this vision, but being good is what human beings have always been about, haven't they? We tell ourselves that anyway. Now nothing could be clearer with regard to this paradox of newness and oldness in the Spirit than the specific fruit of faith, which I am to speak of now. The word Paul uses in this list is, after all, pistis. And it is the great word and concept that Paul lifts up so high in the whole letter to the Galatians, not to mention elsewhere like Romans. We are saved by faith, pistis, not by works. Abraham had faith. His covenant is just that, the covenant of faith, and so on. Everything about salvation depends on faith, in fact. And that was something that the Reformation obviously seized upon in letters like Galatians. Yet here in this list of the fruit, faith stands beside gentleness and self-control as a spiritual product in contrast to what? Carousing, fornication, dissension. Faith versus carousing. Not quite the cosmic gospel we're used to hearing proclaimed. Now Luther saw the problem, and he made sure to point out, now I quote from him, what Paul reckoneth faith, when, excuse me, when Paul reckoneth faith among the fruit of the Spirit, it is clear he speaketh not of faith which is in Christ, but of the fidelity and humanity of one person towards another, unquote. He quickly goes on to treat the fruit of faith as a virtue, that helps people live together in a trusting relationship. But Luther himself understood that the creation we Christians live in still looks pretty much like the old creation, with the devil roaming about trying to devour people, as Peter writes. And that in this creation, it seems pretty fixed, we still have to work hard, toil, toil in the fields even, make a living, accomplish things, write books, get papers in on time, driven as we are by ambitions, lethargies, despondencies, and the rest. So when Luther talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he focuses in this regard on Galatians 5.17, which we heard earlier. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do the things that you would want to do. And he says this is an ongoing battle within a person, even within a Christian uh, saint. We are ever sinners, and only Christ can save us in his righteousness. The Spirit does its work, to be sure, but in this life we are never purified, 
Indeed, far from it. The fruit of the Spirit themselves are always an aspiration, as it were, something we willingly seek after and open ourselves to, but they represent more of an obligato of yearning rather than the embodiment of a clear transformation. Where are all these gentle, loving, self-controlled Christians, after all? Luther certainly wasn't one. Neither are we. In any case, Luther's view of the spiritual fruit of faith as the virtue of fidelity or faithfulness, of getting along with others in a committed way, and he talks about, as well one might, in things like marriage, the business partner, being a manager, being a servant, being a master. Bourgeois virtue or not, and distinct in distinction from that grand lever of salvation that faith in Christ itself constitutes, his view of faith here as faithfulness has generally been the interpretation followed in most translations, like the one we heard just a few moments ago. The fruit is faithfulness, not faith. Except that many of us would not be satisfied with Luther's somewhat resigned view about sanctification's limits, would we? No, the older I get, the more realistic it appears. And I'm going to stick with Luther here, although only to a degree. Faithfulness, not the faith that saves, as he puts it, simply means you stick with someone, with people, with this world. In Luther's words, if you are a faithful person, you are always, and this is his term, crediting the other person, in the sense that you are bound to them as in an everlasting debt. One could pursue this, for instance, in the context of something like the Ten Commandments, sticking with, being indebted to mother and father, to spouse, to neighbor, even in Christ to one's enemy. That is a faithful person. But if this is the meaning of the term, what in, the, in fact is the spirit doing in this such that fidelity grows up out of the ground? In Isaiah's term, like a fruit. And of course the term fruit is significant. It is the very ingredient that constitutes the earth as God's creation in Genesis 1 and that makes humans a part of creation. God grows up from the ground. God makes the, the, the earth fruitful, and God says to the man and the woman, be fruitful. So if faithfulness grows up from the ground, as it were, like fruit, Isaiah's claim that Paul seems to be enunciating, it is because that very ground has been rendered fit to its divine purpose. Creation itself is again in the spirit worth sticking with. Creation itself. But the old creation or the new creation? And I'm not sure how to answer that. As I said earlier, from one perspective, it all looks the same. Past, present, future. Perhaps God is simply being patient with us, as Second uh, Peter notes to those who wonder why nothing has changed in the world. Or perhaps we misunderstand the nature of newness, with respect to the world. For as I said, the shape of the fruit themselves are hardly novel across the ages. What is new with the Spirit, perhaps, is simply that in the Spirit poured out by Christ Jesus, 
we now see clearly how old and new are both worth it in this rambling world and how glorious they are as you and I are caught up in their coming. Faithfulness, that is, may mean simply sticking with the world as it is, as God has created it and renewed it and confused us in the process, as we have picked it apart and unraveled it and tried to find our way in it. Perhaps the Spirit is that which fastens us. We who believe, we who have faith, we who are buried in Christ's death and washed and is rising from the waters, the Spirit fastens us to what God has always wanted us to have, a world of men and women and children, of work, of challenge, of fatigue at times, of joy and loss. And we can debate about what is good and bad in all of this, gift or failure, as Luther himself did in his acknowledgement of struggle being always central to the life of the Christian. But because the Spirit fastens us just here, the old world, the new world, doesn't matter. Here, our life in the Spirit, in this case our faithfulness, means that we do not run away, we do not demean, we do not dismantle such a world as this. That what we call bourgeois or legalistic or old-fashioned is, in the spirit itself, made new. That is, it is shown to be grace. And that, after all, is how all the fruit fit together, it seems, as Dr. Powers said last week. The spirit nails us to creation to where we are such that patience, generosity, and gentleness are all part of what it means to be a Christian here. These are all ways of being stuck to the world by the Spirit such that so being stuck, glory can shine forth from our lives. In the end, faithfulness as stick-with-itness and faith as saving faith are perhaps not so far apart, actually. It is, after all, God's faithfulness that stands behind the entire orientation of scriptural religion. And religion, the word, remember, means to be bound to something, to stick with it. Know, therefore, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It's Deuteronomy 7. We are saved by faith because God is faithful, because God keeps promises, because God doesn't run away from this world and from us, because God doesn't determine that what is awry is not worth his effort and his time, his son, his self. And of course, God is spirit, which simply means that to be faithful faithful to the scriptures, to the witness of the saints, to the church in all its beauty and all her source, to your body, such as it is, though you may not like it, to your spouse, to your child, to your friend, to your boss, to your co-worker, to your colleague, to your enemy, to your studies, just to be faithful, just to be stuck to all this, and to stay there, just to show up 
That is to live in with and through the Lord God Almighty, King of the universe. That is what it is. Blessed be he. Amen.